Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. I had the absolute pleasure of talking with Reverend Bernard J. Lynch the morning after himself and his husband, Billy Desmond, sat in on Philip McMahon's Come On Home at the Peacock Theatre. It was sobering to hear Bernard's reflection on an alternative life played out on stage. An ordained Roman Catholic priest, coming out as gay and being a visible and vocal advocate for the dying men of Reagan's pandemic America, cost him almost everything. In this podcast, Bernard talks with me about the cornerstone of his faith, the high drama of growing up in County Clare, a trumped-up trial by the FBI, and the infallible ignorance of the Pope. Enjoy this podcast. Welcome, Bernard Lynch. Thank you for coming in and talking with me this Sunday morning and interrupting your holiday in Ireland to do so. So you've literally come home to see Come On Home. First things first, can I ask you to introduce yourself and the business title you identify and prefer? I'm usually called Bernard. It's the Irish for Bernard, and I really like it. I suppose officially I, I would go as Reverend Dr. Bernard J. Lynch. That title doesn't do justice of over 40 years service to LGBTI communities in New York and London. You were born in Ennison, County Clare. After graduating from the Christian Brothers School, you joined the Society of African Missions, a Roman Catholic missionary organisation, and then on to a seminary in Northern Ireland. After ordination, you spent time in Zambia and then over 20 years in New York City in the years at the height of the AIDS pandemic, where you founded the city's first AIDS ministry program and was drafted into the mayor of New York's task force on AIDS. Years of persecutions and false allegations by the church and government officials lead you to London in 1992, where you continue to practice as a counsellor and psychotherapist for closeted gay priests. Now, I have made very fast work of your biography and your 40 years work and activism in the LGBTI and AIDS communities, and have failed to mention that you are also a happily married gay man. But I'd like to hear your story as you tell it. So to start that off, my first couple of questions to you would be, what drew you to the church at 17? And using last night's play as a springboard, did elements of that play resonate with you? Um, Lisa, thank you for having me and for your wonderful hospitality to Billy and myself. We really appreciate it very warm. What drew me to the church at uh, 17? Well, growing up in Ennis in the 50s and 60s, there really was nothing else. The church was everything. And we were poor and everybody was poor at that time. Life was very hard. But my parents uh, did their very best and educated us. And that was a time when you had to pay for secondary school education. And I had no awareness of my sexuality, except that my mind from a very early age had been polluted by my church's teaching that practically everything sexual was sin and everything sin was sexual. One could be as unjust as one liked at a level and get away with it, but we were reared on the dope of um, purity, holy purity. And therefore, when I entered the novitiate of the Society of African Missions as a teenager, I wasn't conscious I was getting away from a no-choice situation. My classmates were then, you know, growing up as boys do, having girlfriends. I had a girlfriend or two, but the spark wasn't there. But I didn't know I was gay. I just thought, well, this is a sign that I'm called by God to be a priest. Top that with the fact that the theatre in Ennis in the 50s and 60s was the pro-cathedral church. You know, high drama. You know, fathers dressed up as mothers. What more could you ask? And it was the pre-Vatican II area when, you know, liturgy was really camp and with wonderful vestments and uh, thurifers and ensigns and stations of the cross and benediction, Corpus Christi processions, processions of Our Lady and, 
girls dressed up as virginal brides and flowers scattered in front of the priest as he carried around the Blessed Sacrament. I mean, it was extraordinary. And it was to a boy who was, as it were, um, orientated in that direction, although I didn't have those words at that time, I loved it. I, I was an altar boy from the age of eight. And I think they threw me out of the altar boys because I got hairy legs. I stayed in that long. <laughs> you know? So there you go. That's where it started, my attraction to the church. So it was the theatricality. The theatricality. And I also, and I say this of the LGBTQI people in general, and I don't think it's a gross generalization. We have, I feel, a certain predisposition to, for want of a better words, to the invisible world. That's what attracts us to theater and to art and to music and to poetry. You know, we, um, we go from the visible to the invisible very easily. I don't like the word spirituality because I, I feel it's overused. I prefer to say, like when my brother passed away, for example, when Sean left his body, he went from the visible world to the invisible world. And as we know, the invisible world exists just because we cannot see it. I mean, every artist starts from the visible to go into it. So I had that as well as a boy. I was attracted in common coinage, to God or goddess or mystery or uh, the language of something more, this sort of here and now and the not yet. And even in primary school, I had a certain proclivity for catechism. I, I did very well when, when we were talking about the church, which that happened to be the sort of the ground of God at that time. I mean, I've gone a long way from thinking that now. I seriously believe all religion is man-made and therefore all religion is about the denial of God at some profound level, the denial of the mystery. Religio, you know, the Latin etymology, it seeks to, to bind, whereas spirituality, to use the word there, rua, spirit, it's, it's wide open. And it's female, of course, uh, even in the Hebrew scriptures and uh, Christian scriptures, the word for spirit is female, you know, it's not male. So uh, I believe women, like gay men, have a very particular dispensation toward, toward the divine or the divines, or again, the invisible world. That's part of the reason that the church is so dependent, ironically, on women. Watching last night, were there elements of that production that rang true for you? Did it ring true? Lisa, I left the theatre split into. I found it so difficult. I really, I wanted you to be outside so I could just hug you or maybe more that you could hug me. Now I had Billy there, which was great, and I'm so grateful he was with me. I left you purposely so you could digest it and percolate. Um. I was percolating, that is for sure. <laughs> I don't know how well I was di digesting. Yeah, it left me split in two. You know, the history that produces us can never be given away. And I have spent, I suppose, 25, 30 years in therapy myself, personally, to deal with my own brokenness, to deal with, and I'm not unique in this at all, the terrible damage done to me by my church, to especially psychosexually, emotionally, and to sit there in the theatre, I am so grateful I came here. It was a splendid production, beautifully written, wonderfully produced. 
and the sort of build up to the crescendo in the second act. I just, I cried all through the second act. And what caused the sort of lacuna in me was the, uh, I could identify so well with both sides. Um, the lay people, the violence, terrible anger, the family, and then the clerics, you know, and the torture and the denial and the self-hatred and, and you know, I sat there holding Billy's hand, kind of saying, thank you, God, I escaped in some small way. I haven't escaped. You know, the fact that I have been so long in therapy only proves how crazy I am, not how sane I am. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I know love now, and uh, that came at a very high price and real cost. But the alternative, as I saw it portrayed on the stage, When people talk about coming out, it usually refers to coming out to your family and friends and society at large, but of course there's the coming out to yourself. But you, in fact, would have also had to come out to your church. And I wanted to ask you, I suppose, how you reconcile that with your faith. Well, where do I begin there, you know, and not keep you all day? I mean, it was a very long journey coming out to myself I think I only came out to myself as you asked the question I was 28 years of age and I went to New York to study psychology and theology masters and doctorate and the at Fordham University in New York Theological Seminary and the man who interviewed me for the initial degree made it um, mandatory that I would uh, go into therapy. He picked up something and thank goodness he did. He said, you know, your, your previous degrees are fine, you, you know, you're admitted to the courses, but we will make it a precondition that you yourself will go into therapy. And is that the norm? Would that Support be usually it wasn't at that time. As if you're doing psychology now, it, it is, but it wasn't at that time. So um, it was there I unraveled my sexuality. I mean, I was deeply troubled, and I knew that I was in New York to quote unquote take care of myself, and my, and my superiors knew that, and to their credit. Uh, they, in fact, um, augmented my going to New York to do psychology, but they didn't necessarily know that I would have to do my own personal therapy. So that's where the journey began. At first, you know, like, like most people of my era, I, I prayed <laughs> morning, noon, and night, and that is no exaggeration for God to take this away. Didn't want to be gay. Um, I mean, I have stories like, <laughs> like buying Playboy, you know, and, and looking at the hetero pictures and trying to get stimulated by them just in order to kind of, oh, my prayers have been answered. And what, in fact, you know, it's like that, that line from Christ, the stone rejected by the builders has become the cornerstone, that stone of my gay sexuality, and I would say the same to lesbian, women, transgendered, etc., etc. That stone rejected becomes the cornerstone of who you are and how you love. Would that, you know, my gayness or anyone's sexuality was so simply about genitality? It's not. And that's what the church reduces us to. It reduces us to genitality. My sexuality, yours, our sexuality, has as much to do with how we appreciate a flower, 
listen to a piece of music, celebrate Mass, as it does with whom we love or don't love, as the case may be. Because our sexuality is the seat of our relationality, its core. And when that is disordered, and it is the church that disorders it, I mean, that's the label it uses, but it is disordered by the church, which to me is an evil, church doing evil, then it takes a lifetime to recuperate healthiness in that arena. Because every uh, lesbian woman, gay man, you know, the order of the heart is reversed for them when they are born. And everything and everyone expects them to be quote-unquote straight. And then they uncover and discover, and they usually have to teach their mentors how to mentor, like their parents and their family. So even though we are in Dublin, post-Pride, I'm so proud to come back and see this, celebrate this. But there's so much work to be done. And the play demonstrated that so graphically, so painfully. There's so much work to be done. Because I'm not that old, I'm no chicken. And you know, but I would say, it's only now. It's only the children, the, the LGBTQI children born now that will be born into where the order of the heart is not reversed. And you know, it's for the heart that God is called. And it is your heart that God wants and that your friend asks you for. But we as gay people, we didn't have our heart to begin with. So we couldn't give it. And that's why at the end of the play, you know, I wanted just to be held, because I considered myself so lucky to find a man that gave me back my heart. That's a beautiful way of looking at it. I have to ask you, Bernard, when you, when you revealed yourself to yourself and realized that you were gay, um, I suppose the terms and conditions of being part of the Catholic Church would be that uh, there was a there's a vocation and a vocation to celibacy. Um, would you talk to me about that vocation? The reality is, you know, coming out in the church, particularly as a clergy person, is in fact coming out of the clergy. The church does not tolerate honesty. The church does not tolerate integrity. The church does not tolerate openness. If a man is closeted and the technical terms are egodystonic, in other words, if he hates himself, as a gay man, he can stay. If he loves himself, he must leave. And that is official teaching. Even recently with the present Pope, Pope Francis, you know, has very, very recently said gay men are not welcome in the priesthood, even though it's quite full of gay men. Some would say I would be inclined to agree. 50%, maybe less, or maybe more. And that has happened. So once I came out as a gay man, I was out, and I was not in a relationship. And I did try celibacy. Uh, it was only much later that uh, I found someone to love and be loved by. But once I said I am a gay man, and that happened, as you well know, or I maybe I'm being presumption. That happened as a result and consequence of my involvement in AIDS work in New York. I was part of this homophile Catholic community called Dignity in New York, where 1,200 people worshipped, the largest uh, homophile community on the continental United States of America, in St. Francis Xavier uh, in Greenwich Village. West 16th Street, and I happened to be part of that community as a priest, a theological consultant, and I, um, I was there from the early 70s, 
when I went to New York. And then the AIDS pandemic broke out. And naturally, you know, at that time, and maybe still, uh, even in Ireland, uh, people do look to the priest when they are troubled, facing unexplainable suffering and death. It's a natural, as Oscar Wilde would say, you know, if there wasn't a God, we'd invent one. And there is truth in that. I was there in, uh, as their theological consultant. People started dying. Um, and we didn't know why uh, at first. The first man, Gustavo, he died at his own hand uh, because he I was 81. He couldn't find a doctor to diagnose problems. He was just getting sick, getting sick, getting sick. So eventually he just topped himself. We didn't know at the time he had HIV AIDS. But, he, but it went from, it escalated. I mean, within, within two years, there were already hundreds of people dying around the city. And so I, it was getting too much for me. And I um, called for a meeting and help and therefore founded what became known as um, AIDS Ministry Dignity in New York and then onto the Mayor's Task Force on AIDS. And there I was as a priest, Father Bernard, as they call me, and uh, ministering to these young people, a lot of them Irish, um, immigrants like myself. And the cardinal at the time, Cardinal O'Connor, we were trying to, to get an ordinance or a, you know, through the city called Intra 2, which basically would protect lesbian and gay people in their jobs and housing. Because now the city was beginning to um, discriminate in light of AIDS. People didn't know how it was contracted and how you, where you would get it, and so there was real fear and panic. So there was a, an ordinance, and I was asked to speak to the city council, which I did. And it passed, and I had no reservation in light of what I was witnessing firsthand, the most ignominious deaths I've ever seen, and very young deaths. I mean, the average ages were between 18 and 30, of young men who had no way of relating to what was happening to them in any medicinal way, first of all. There was, no, there was no cure. Science. Or then, you know, in any meaningful sense, make, making sense of the senseless. So I felt I had to say, I'm one of you especially in light of the horrendous discrimination. I would go to hospitals in New York, all over New York. I knew, I knew every single hospital up and down the east side and west side. And food would be left at the doors of these men's rooms because this is not a criticism, it's just a fact. The, the nurses and orderlies were afraid to carry it in in case they get the disease. So several people died of starvation. And, uh, you know, I could tell you stories after story of, of picking up mothers, and it was mostly mothers, at Kennedy Airport and taking them to the dying son, deathbed of their son, and they always came in and said, Father, your father, yeah, and I said, yeah, and I said, does he have the rock Hudson disease? That's what. And the son was coming out as gay for the first time, and now he was usually dead within a week. And um, I saw such bravery on the part of Irish mothers. <laughs> it was usually mothers, they left the father at home, or he chose to stay at home, or I don't know, you know, how that works, but it seems, again, women are more comfortable, if that's the word, with um, their son's sexualities rather than men. 
sheer fear and ignorance uh, evident at that time, or it was evident at that time. And because you're acting on behalf of the church as a priest, offering this act of consolation to these dying men, when the church's stance on it was to attribute it as evil. Will you talk to me about, I suppose, trying to hold on to that faith for these men when their own church was turning their back on them? Well, it became very quickly uh, clear to all of us that we weren't going to get any support from the church. In fact, we were thrown out of the church in the middle of the AIDS crisis. We were expelled from our church in the mid-80s. This 1,200 people. were congregating at the church to practice mass. To just have mass and the sacraments and listen to what, I mean, you know, it wasn't a sort of somebody going up there and advertising a gay dance or giving a dating service or, it was mass. We were thrown out. In November, in the 80s, mid-80s, I'm not quite sure of the year, it's easy. You know, we were thrown out, freezing cold, and 600 of our congregation died. Half of the congregation died of AIDS. And we had to go to, first of all, the Lesbian Gay Community Center on West 14th Street to have mass, just the center hall like this. And then we got into a Protestant church. But that was the Catholic church in New York responding to AIDS at the behest of the Vatican. They ordered that dignity had to be expelled from all churches because they now taught T-A-U-G-H-T that we were disordered in our nature, evil in our love, and that AIDS was the natural result of unnatural acts. So therefore we were to blame for getting this disease. Why would you want to stay with a church that that speaks like that? Well, there was a nun there called Sister Patrice Murphy working at St. Vincent's Hospital, which was the AIDS hospital in New York. And she said to me, she knew I was at the forefront. She said, Bernard, I'm afraid you'll have to transcend the church to find God. And I would say that's when I gave up on religion. But I was able without sounding in any way better than or holier than, I was able to transcend. Uh, I was able to say the church has nothing to do with God in this arena. In fact, it's anti-God and it's anti-Christ. And the nearer you get to God, the further you must move from the church. Now that is still true. I mean, I've been an activist for over 40 years and nothing has changed in that teaching. So I would still say to any lesbian woman or gay man, the nearer you are to God, the further you must be from the church. And therefore, with these men who didn't have, a lot of these young men, they wouldn't have had the opportunity, theologically, philosophically, to work stuff through, like I had been privileged to do. So what they didn't want the church then. The church rejected them. They returned the compliment, and of course that's what most gay people do anyhow. God bless them for it. Uh, the, uh, the most I could do with my AIDS ministry team is help them in whatever way we could, from changing diapers, cleaning up the shit and the piss, was as basic as that, to, to staying with them, to bringing them food, to informing families, bringing them in or keeping them away if the family was overly religious, trying to keep them away from the, so that they wouldn't become another opportunistic infection to their dying son. And then trying to arrange funerals. On a spiritual level, to put it, we, we, would, we would pray, we would try to pray, but we would befriend, we, I, would, I would hold the hand of a man and I would just I'm with you and you know 
I hope we're going we're all going to a better place. Your compassion is is evident. And I have to remember that this is a time that people were afraid to touch these men. But Lisa, I also thought I had it. My three closest priest friends died. My closest and closest priest friends, a man who taught me theology, who was my uh, professor and confessor in spirit, died of AIDS, which led to my trial. You know, yeah, well, hope is only possible when you're in despair. And at this time, you were feeling despair? Total despair. So, total despair. And, and I mean, many of my, my brothers in the pandemic, they committed suicide. And I was tempted, but I, I refused because I wouldn't give up. I wouldn't, I hope, that's all. I don't say I believe, I say I hope. Like, you can translate it if you want, I believe in a God who does not know how not to love. And the God of my hope, the God of my dreams, the God of my life, is that invincible summer that no winter can destroy. And I found that through the men dying of AIDS. And, and that's, my, that's, and I, I could, I, that's all I could say to them, Bernard, I, and I would just say, I hope, I hope, Colin, I hope, Peter, I hope, John, I hope, we can't give up hope. You mentioned your trial um, and the hostility and persecution and the false allegations by the church and government officials against you in which you were fully exonerated. Do you, did you hold and do you hold any anger at that attempted destruction of your good name? Um, do I hold any anger? Well, I, I suppose I do hold some anger, but I'm quite at home. At this stage, it's almost 30 years with reconciling myself with what happened. We don't choose our moving posts. And the path chooses us. And I think that in the end, if we are worthy of the path that chooses us, we just give thanks. And it's a strange thing to say in relationship to my trial, which was such a terrible injustice. And set up, you know, I was simply the pawn in the game. The trial wasn't about Bernard Lynch. The trial was about us as a community in New York. It was basically to say you're damned. And if you stand up for the community, you're doubly damned. And anybody, and no pre-sense, no pre-sense. That was 1988 I went to trial. 30 years ago, exactly. No pre-sense has stood up in that way. Because the church made an example of me. As we know, they brought about these false charges with a boy in my school who was promised $5 million, all documented, can be viewed on YouTube, can read the book, buy the program, get the mug and the t-shirt. It is an incredible, yeah. if, you, if you wrote it, you wouldn't believe it. You, You'd say yeah. it was too far-fetched. Too far-fetched. And at the time, it destroyed me. It absolutely destroyed me. I couldn't believe it. I didn't. I mean, I, I suppose that's what kept me going. I was still hoping that it was. Talk of hope can be a very ordinary thing as well as a theological virtue. But it took me a long time to get over it. And I suppose there is a level to answer your question. 
at which I will never get over it. Because here was the church that I was trying to serve. In the poor, quote unquote, in the unwanted. And they tried everything to destroy my good name and my ministry. And they didn't succeed. Which is kind of, despite the fact they had the, like I remember my attorney at the time basically telling me I had no hope in hell. That was there. Because you're up against the two most form formidable institutions in the world, the Roman Catholic Church and the FBI. And my prosecution, this is, this is I mean, this is so, was authorized by the Attorney General of the United States of America, Edmund Meese, under Ronald Reagan. So they were all in cahoots. You see, Ronald Reagan was, was, was a terrible president. He allowed millions of Americans to die of this disease. And the Catholic Church and he were in full cahoots. So my prosecution came from the top down to make me an example. And how was it that your name was cleared? Because the, the accuser admitted that he had been... He had been forced to testify. Yes, he admitted on the stand. And he refused to go further. And the judge wanted to say, we will dismiss the charges. And my attorney said, no way. No way. And then the judge said, okay, we'll go all the way. There is absolutely no cause. I find in this man, and he carried me fiercely innocent of all the charges. And um, that was long before all these other revelations. I mean, isn't it funny that the Catholic Church sets this up as my boogeyman, and it's so guilty of so many collusions of priests abusing young men and women and women, etc. etc. You mentioned that you've you've reconciled your anger after the trial. Have you reconciled your anger at the loss of all of that generation of young men and your friends and the way the church treated them? There isn't a day I don't think of them. In um, my home, both in over here in Lahensha and our flat in London, I have what I call an altar seat. I always have a picture of two of different, change them, and I light a candle occasionally to keep their memory alive. Because I do believe they're in the invisible world, and that we can be, you know, that's very Celtic, that, you know, between God and us, there is no between between life and us, life and death, there is no between. Um, you know, we, the bodies that we are occupy, to use the classical language, our souls for now, but I believe that our soul, our spirit always was and always will be. And the spirits of our ancestors. And, you know, we're surrounded and in touch and inspired by, motivated, prayed to, uh, guided by. Uh, I believe in that very deeply. Can I bring you back to London? You're a founder member of a movement for gay priests. The hope you provide them with, uh, after your treatment for being honest about your sexuality, there seems to be a thin line between, I suppose, you calling on your courage and being honest, and then you being used, I suppose, as a cautionary tale after everything you've been through. Will you talk to me about faith and fear? Faith and fear. Well, the opposite of love is not hate. It's fear. And fear leads to hate. And I don't know about your Ireland. You're a little younger than I am. <laughs> but my Ireland was, um, we feared everybody. And most of all, we feared God. And the God of fear has to be hated. 
absolutely hate it. Because there is no fear in love. And there is no love in fear. And you could say at this ripe young age of mine, I'm, I'm so in love. Just with life. Just with everything that is, most of all, what is human. Because, I mean, human is the very special face of God, as I understand it. But so is art, music, a bee, flower, you know. And I think that to be born is to be human, but it is also to become human. And the people that were in the play last night, their humanity was so castrated by religion and fear. All of them, I hope I'm doing the play justice. That I wanted Mr. McMahon to write the sequel where it wouldn't be. But maybe that's his genius. He didn't and he won't. And a person becomes what they are open to. And for me to be open is to be open to the world of eternal possibility, which is love. And I don't know how I will die, no more than anyone. But I pray that that will be my last thought. And I pray that for you and for everyone, that we will be open to the possibility, not the proof, the possibility of eternal love. And that's where I'm coming from now, after all of that. And that's where it has led me to. When you speak of love, um, let's uh, talk about your husband, Billy. You talked to me about how you met over 25 years ago. And I suppose nego negotiating that relationship with your vocation. Well, you know, gay men have lots of stories of how they met. <laughs> Some are not televised. But in on this one occasion, um, although I'm no saint in that regard either, um, we met at a birthday party of a mutual friend. I mean, Billy met me at a time when I was not worth my salt in terms of I was so broke. I was so completely Trina Kayla in every way, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually. I was after the trial. I was after the AIDS pandemic. I was in London because I had to be. I didn't want to be. My therapist and my friends advised me to get out in New York. I had become a cause celebrate because of what I'd been through and I wasn't able to handle it came to London for three years and was working at London Lighthouse on the pastoral care team, CARA, C-A-R-A. And uh, I met Billy. And it was so, he's younger than me, as you know, you've met him. And he had seen me on the Late Late Show or something and he knew who I was, pardon me, and he had seen my skin. He had no idea what was inside. And he found that, for his own reasons, attractive, I suppose physically as well as whatever. And I'm embarrassed. And he, um, I remember him saying to me, I'm interested in you. And I, I did say to him, I said, Billy, you're beautiful and I'm flattered. And you weren't open to love. I'm not at all. I wasn't even open to going home with them. I mean, and having a, a roll in the hay, as we'd say in Clara. Um, I wasn't. Because I knew he was serious from the word go. He didn't want to roll in the hay either. He did, and I did. But uh, not just that. And 
just to give you an idea, and I don't mind sharing this with you, after so much sickness and death of so many of my friends, a lot of us had given up on sex because it meant death. And the first time Billy and I tried to make love, I remember I, I literally falling in bits and he taking me, we were in the shop, and he, he taking me up in his arms and he lifting me into her bedroom and we'd done nothing and he just, I was just crying and he just holding me and said, it's okay, you're not going to die, you're going to be okay. And I mean, it, that's pretty heavy for a man 22 years, my junior, who really knew very little about AIDS and the pandemic to handle. And it took me five years to say, <laughs> to say yes to him. Uh, well, you kept with it. Well, he kept with it, Lisa. He kept with it. I remember it so well, and it was a Sunday, we a Sunday here. I said, Billy, I, I, look, you're wasting your time. You, you can see that I'm really not able. I, you're a young man, intelligent, beautiful, compassionate, sensitive man. I said, you know, the hundreds out there. And he was kind of devastated. And I said, I'm sorry. If we're going to go on like this, it's only hurting you, and it's hurting me to hurt you now. And he left my apartment in London. And I run a lot. Now, that's a metaphor as well as being a so would I, says you, but, uh, <laughs> but um, I run a lot and I, I went out running as a way of dealing with it. And I was at the top of the street coming back from my run and I saw this Billy way down the end of the street with his head down and I, I could have easily avoided him. And I came down the street and I said Billy and he was in floods of course. He went right through me. He said, I cannot do this to this man. So I said, Billy, I'll try. And here we are, 20 some years later. Married in 2017? Married in County Clare, the first gay couple, which was a real, you know, what do we say? We shall not cease from exploration at the end of all our exploring is to return from where we started and know it for the first time. And maybe this is the first time I've known Claire and Ireland as love, a place of love. That might be a lovely note to end on, but I wanted to ask you about Pope Francis' impending visit to Ireland and the fact that he has the top job and that he actually can make changes do you think he will? And are you disappointed with what he hasn't done so far? I am very disappointed, Lisa. I think he's a good man, and much better than his predecessors, the ones who inaugurated the terrible language we have about LGBTQI people. But for example, when he speaks of transgender people, he has what I would call infallible ignorance. He doesn't know what he's talking about at all, at all. He hasn't a clue. I mean, if you listen to any of his statements, um, they're, they're just no knowledge. It's, it's they're pontifical. Mean you know a, 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 an a priori attitude that is not based on any facts whatsoever about what it is to be transgender. He, he believes it's a choice, for example. As the Vatican believed for so long that gay is a choice, I'm not quite sure now they do. And lesbianism is a choice, and so on and so on. So nothing has changed, and he is not changing anything. In fact, just recently also, he again banned gay men from entering priesthood. Women's ordination is an absolute no. So 
like where's the Francis that is going to make a difference in terms of fact, not just fancy, not just the gesture, not just the symbol, but the real factual change. Simple as Mary Mackay, treat women as equals. It's very simple. Well, treat gays as, equal, as equals as well. And what I would ask in light of particularly the horrendous abuse we have suffered at the hands of the church, women and us, I would ask for an apology. You know, you don't have to be a Christian to know that Christianity is supposed to be about forgiveness. But the Catholic Church is the last to practice. Forgiveness is all. Forgiveness is everything. And I believe one can forgive without a person saying they're sorry. In fact, I believe we must forgive. I must forgive the young man who brought the charges against me, the church and the state, in, for my own survival. Can you forgive the church? Yes, I can forgive the church for what it's done to me. And that was so painful to watch on the stage, what it does to his priests, capers. I can forgive it, yes, and I do forgive it. But I can never forget it. It's not, it's not forgive and forget. It's forgive and work for change, in my case, or forgive, in my case, I only speak for, about myself in this, and leave it and ask for change. But I ask the church to apologize to all the young men, their families, for blaming them for their own illness and letting them die in despair. Uh, I ask them to apologize to women for the perennial misogyny that still exists. And that's what I want Francis. I want Francis in Phoenix Park or Enoch to say, Women are our equal, therefore, all offices in the church are open to them. Uh, LGBTQI people are our sisters and brothers. They are part of the family of God and they will be treated with the same respect as everybody ought to be in that family. Co-equals, not hierarchies, not hierarchies. We're all equal before God and I absolutely believe that. And I wish Francis gave us the leadership in that that we need at this time. Well, I hope that you get your apology from the Phoenix Park. Thank you very much for your time on this Sunday morning. Thank you, Lisa.